three, two, one. What's up, Dodd fam? Welcome to episode 145 of the Dodd Health Podcast. My name is Derek Teal. I'm the owner and head coach here at DoddHealth.com. And on today's episode, I get to sit down with Frank Overton, who is the owner and founder of Fast Cat Coaching and also the developer of Optimized Training App, which we're going to talk about in the episode. But it's just incredible what this guy's created. He has a monster coaching platform that he's built up over the last 20 years. And all of that experience really comes through on this episode because I start out by straight up asking him, what's the biggest mistake cyclists are making? And his answer actually surprised me. And then we go into talking about setting up a proper base season, but also the base to race season, which is that transition when you really want to sharpen the axe and you're like a month out from your A race or your A event or whatever is going on. Whatever day that you want to perform the highest on, we talk about peaking up to that and the transition, which he calls base to race. We also talk about things like race simulations and why they're important. And we also get into the story about how he invented the term sweet spot training. Yes, you heard me correctly. He invented the term sweet spot training, and it's a really cool story. So I'm grateful to have Frank on this podcast. I learned a ton, and I think you will as well. There's a lot of actionable things that you can take away from this episode and actually implement it into your own schedule. And then we dive into my weekly thoughts where we begin with a protein topper recipe, actually two different recipes that I've been having for lunch almost every single day. Then we go into the latest book I've been reading, my favorite strength movement that I've been finishing all of my workouts with recently. And we also talk about where my business is going content-wise, things I'm putting my focus on and prioritizing. And I think that this part of the episode is really for the OG Dowd fan members who want to know more behind the business and a little bit more about me. So I hope you guys enjoy that. If you are enjoying the podcast, please make sure that you are And if that's the case, please leave this show a five-star rating and review on the Apple Podcast app. You can also screenshot that you're listening to this episode, post it to your Instagram story, and make sure that you tag me at Dialed Health. And you can also tag Frank Overton at Fast Cat Coaching. And that way we'll have the opportunity to repost it. Now, lastly, before we dive into the episode, please go and check out dialedhealth.com for all of your strength training needs off the bike to make you the best cyclist possible and also support your overall health and well-being. My goal is to give you every tool necessary for you to become stronger, more stable, and more confident on the bike. And we accomplish that through our training programs that you can use with any equipment that you have available. Everything from a full gym access to no equipment at all, we have options for you. You can go to the website use the program quiz. It will shoot me an email and I will follow up and help you pick the perfect program. So without further ado, let's dive into the episode. Frank, you have been a coach for over 20 years now. What is the biggest mistake that you see cyclists making? Well, it's hard to identify just one. Um, but let's start with probably the long ride. Not enough cyclists do the long ride. We're talking four to six hours. So good for you. Even if you're not doing long races or events, it's just such good training. And, you know, nowadays with indoor platforms and structured workouts and everyone's time crunched. Um, yeah, no one does the long ride. And it's, it has a, like a lot of benefits for you. How frequently are you talking about? Is this a once a week thing? Multi, multiple times a week? What's ideal? <clears throat> Definitely once a week. Um, you know, also depends on your goals. I mean, once a month is better than not at all. You know, so once a month is great. Uh, twice a month is better. Once a week is even better. Um, you have to balance it around with your training. Not everyone is, you know, has all these hours to train. But if you do get like one day, you know, that's your cycling day and you can do a four or five hour ride, it doesn't even have to be year round. It can be like in the next couple of months when the weather is getting all good, really tough to do long rides in the winter uh, on the trainer. I, a long ride on the trainer is like two or three hours. Um, oh, yeah. But yep. four to six outside, uh, once the weather gets good, once a month at the minimum is outstanding. <clears throat> yeah, so you're seeing that regular cyclists, avid cyclists, even experienced cyclists are going more than a month without doing a ride maybe surpassing three hours or so? Yeah, when I got into cycling, 
gosh, I was doing hour and a half rides, two hours maybe, and you know, riding pretty hard. And it wasn't until someone told me to do long, easy miles that I started doing it. You know, it's because you kind of look at what the pros are doing and you know, they're doing long rides. But it took someone to tell me that I needed to do that till I started mm-hmm. doing it. And, <clears throat> Yeah. I mean, it's just like the prevalence of indoor platforms and everyone is cranking on the Zwift and, you know, doing their one hour (laughs) workouts. It's good, but it could be a lot better. Yeah. It's interesting you say that because I think I find myself at times that there's not an event or I don't really go out of my way to plan a bigger ride that I could go weeks at a time without doing more than a three hour ride. Because for me, that 50 to 60 mile mark tends to be what the the bigger ride is I'll do on the weekend, unless I'm very intentional and set aside a block of time. And for me yeah. at this point in my life, getting a day where I can ride until noon, uh, which, you know, every cyclist, that's what you tell your wife, but you really get home at one, one thirty. Right. And so right. if you have <clears throat> something time. like that, yeah. <laughs> did you, what yeah. did you say? Wedding time? I was going to say, you, how you explain it to your wife? It's like, hun, we're, we were counting riding time, not total time. Yeah, you gotta there like you go. stop for coffee and someone flatted. That's my greatest excuse. Uh, <laughs> someone in the group flatted, and we had to wait for him. Yeah, she's she's like, it took an hour and a half to change a flat. <laughs> <laughs> hey, that's it's good though. I, I need yeah. some more excuses for sure because it's just hard to break the reality that you're going to be gone for six hours or something like that. But But yeah, yeah, it is good. It's a good reminder to look at your own riding schedule and really ask yourself if you're getting caught in that trap. And so what do you say to someone when they are really focused on indoor training, especially for zone two rides? Because I have experienced this and I've also heard a lot of people talking about how efficient it is and how beneficial to do zone two on the trainer because of the lack of interruptions. Of course, this kind of depends on where you live, what your riding circumstances are. But I'll tell you, like someone who lives in the suburbs, it takes me 20 minutes to get out of, excuse me, an area without stoplights. And so if I have two hours to do a zone two ride, it feels more beneficial to do it indoors. The only problem is, you know, being outdoors is a lot more fun. So what what do you Mm -hmm. say to that situation? Because I'm sure it's coming up more and more. Yeah. And like, if you live in New York city, I mean, it takes you an hour to get out of the city across the bridge up to where you can do any sort of intervals. I mean, that's really common for a lot of, you know, city dwellers, so to speak. And so indoor training is incredibly efficient. You get on and you're, you're productive right from the get go. Though I I tell people in that cyclists in that situation, I tell them two things. Number one, uh, do structured intervals. Uh, You can accomplish more uh, by riding harder uh, than you can in zone two alone. That's kind of how I invented sweet spot uh, close to 20 years ago. You can accomplish more by doing sweet spot work in one hour than you can by just riding zone two. Now that doesn't mean you stop doing zone two. You got to train all zones where that's, we believe in that, but on some days you do sweet spot and some days you do zone two. So that's the other thing is like follow up a plan, follow a training plan that's well thought out and you're making the most of your time. The other thing I say to those athletes is like for the, like maybe ones that I'm coaching or we get to talk with occasionally, we're like, well, what does your Saturday look like? Can you, like a lot of people in Denver drive up to Boulder on Saturdays, park their car to go ride because Denver is horrible for cycling. You have to I mean, you spend 30, 40 minutes getting out of Denver and then the riding still isn't that good. So, you know, I talked to athletes about driving somewhere to go ride. And then naturally, if they like that, it'd be like, can you ride four to six hours? And we'd get them to do a long ride um, or at least longer than the other thing is like indoor training. One hour is fine and great, but oh my gosh, you do that year round. And it's like, you know, kind of. Not, yeah. it's not sustainable. Everyone's motivated <laughs> the first three months, but it's not something you want to do year round. Okay. I want to get into that because this has <laughs> been the rainiest Northern California winter, maybe ever in history, definitely in my lifetime. And so yeah. even though I absolutely have loved the trainer over the years, I've never been tested to this extent and forced to ride it as frequently. And sure. so <clears throat> I want to get back into that, but you just said something that might've blown my mind. Did you say you invented sweet spot training? Yeah. Yeah. 2005. 
okay, come on now. Tell me about this because I'm definitely a believer in Sweet Spot. <laughs> After building my first, I guess, base and doing yeah. Structured Zone to work for the first time, I moved into Sweet Spot and I stayed there for a while and I really credit it to being able to uh, go in Everest or double Everest or do these big events with somewhat of a low volume uh, because of the regular Sweet Spot training. So first off, thank you. Secondly, of course. 2005, you said? Yeah. 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 Okay. Well, Tell me started, about how you went about coining this. How did this happen? Yeah. So, uh, late 2003, <clears throat> 2004, I was working with a group of coaches. That was when I was maybe a year or so into my coaching career. And, uh, Dr. Andy Coggin and a group of coaches, uh, Andy had a model that he was developing, which is the modern day performance manager chart and training peaks. And we were using that model in Excel, Microsoft Excel. And we were going out and riding, downloading our power files, getting a training stress score from those power files, which was the early metric that went into that software called WKO. And I don't even know about that. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so so we're, we're, we're basically, we're going out and training. We're putting our, our, our data into Andy's model. And then we were talking about whether it was working or not. And uh, I happened to be trained for the uh, Colorado State time trial at the, at the time. And, you know, I was doing my own training and I was going out and sweet spotting a lot. And I was trying to generate large TSSs. And what I found is riding sub threshold for as long as I could was really productive for my training. And we were talking about it in the group and we were pl plugging that data into the model and, um, uh, yeah, I like uncorked one at the state TT that year. I nearly won. I like completely peaked. It's like probably my greatest uh, steady state performance ever. I did a 40K time trial of sub 50 minutes at 350 watts. And yeah, buddy. Yeah. So that was how Sweet Spot got born. And that month, I wrote about it on a website called Pez Cycling News. I think you can search it to this day. Uh, and then, you know, I was coaching full time. I started to give sweet spot training to all the other athletes I was coaching. And some of them were professional level and they went on to get like crazy fast and do well in races. And, you know, my coaching career kind of took off from that. And, you know, we just kept writing and, and talking more about sweet spot training and sharing it with everyone. And, that's kind of how it started. Um, and then more people adopted it. And, you know, obviously it's like really good for you. And, you know, it's it's great because it's productive and people get faster. And, you know, that's kind of the name of the game. That's incredible. So at what point did you say this is this is the sweet spot and we're calling it that because <laughs> it's just yeah. so sweet? Like at what point did that mm -hmm. term stick? Because I feel like that's something that came up. It's almost like a nickname. You just start yeah. saying it. And then all of a sudden it sticks. So how did that come about? Yeah. I mean, so back to this model with Andy Coggin and we have this like uh, chat group with all the other coaches and we were just like, you know, describing the training and all my training came in 84 to 97% of my threshold FTP. And um, one day Andy shared a graph and he like graphed it out and he was like, you know, okay, here's, here's your, your stress if you do zone five training, and then here's your productivity. And he kind of like triangulated the, the stress to productivity. And he, he drew this arc and it was zone base, like zone two through zone five. And he like drew a little circle around the peak. And he was like, that's the sweet spot. And we were like, yeah, that's the sweet spot. And you know, that, then I wrote about it and that's how it stuck. Yeah. That is so awesome. I love that. My dad. Yeah. At yeah, what, yeah. Yeah. You, yeah. You got to give yourself a little pat on the back after these years, like knowing that that had stuck that way. Uh, because mm -hmm. at least uh, through platforms that I've used with training and uh, circles that I run, it's definitely, I mean, it's, it is the sweet spot. So it's stuck. Yeah. <laughs> That's awesome. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's been adopted by so many folks. <laughs> it's, it's tremendous. Yeah. But yeah, I mean, so did you start? I, yeah, oh, go ahead. No, I, it, you know, sweet spot is like, it's like we just kind of came up with a catchy name for sub threshold training, and we actually popularized it though because we told people how to use it. It's like 
here's mm. a here's a training technique and here's how you can you know use it to accomplish your goals i think that's the real accomplishment is just sharing it with so many folks and explaining it so so well and then you know it's become hotly debated which is kind of fun on the internet oh yeah that was my next question i was going to ask if you started pulling your hair out when the polarized training just went through the roof roof with hype uh i want to say maybe 2 years ago maybe I, yeah. I don't know yeah yeah i mean so when someone comes to you and and wants to tell you why they need to train polarized or uh, a certain way I mean, what, mm-hmm. what are your thoughts on that? Do you, do you guide them through it? Cause I know <clears throat> as a coach with strength training, sometimes mm-hmm. you have to let people really try something out to learn whether or not it's good or bad, because most likely it's going to benefit them. And maybe you need to have more of a discussion, the more elite that they are, but it's okay yeah. to let people kind of wander when their gen- when their interest leads them there. And it almost is necessary for them to get it out of their head. You know, like when, sometimes yeah. when people say, Hey, should I do this? When you look yeah. at the potential downside, if there's nothing major, you're like, you kind of need to do it just so you can get that thought out of your head. So, so, yeah. uh, sorry, I kind of went on a tangent there, but wh- what are your thoughts on that? When someone has a specific way that they want to train and they almost try and force you as the coach into it. Yeah. You know, I mean, that's certainly a personality trait and I think you have to let people <laughs> self-experiment and direct a little bit on their own. And then you, you got to be there to kind of catch them when, it's they realize it's not working and maybe there's the joke, you know, do what your coach told you to do the first time or whatever that, that joke is. But the really, when, when people come to me with the polarized model, I tell them the story about my development as a, you know, I eventually became a professional cyclist and um, I spent two years riding in zone two, you know, 20 hours, 25 hours a week in the winter and, you know, I got pretty fast doing the polarized method and, uh, you know, I raced professionally and went on, you know, to, you know, race against, you know, all the, all the big dogs like Lance and, and Levi and, and all that. And yeah, I got okay. And then when I discovered sweet spot training and began to sweet spot train, that's when I began winning races and, you know, mm. you know, almost winning state time trials, I could win a criterium. You know, my mountain biking went through the roof. Um, I could roll a breakaway. What I noticed when I was zone two training is like the longer the race was, the more I sucked. And I'd start off fine and good. I was really good with short-term power, but I got tired after like two hours. And then if I did a stage race, I could have like the first day was really good, but stages two and three, uh, my performance like declined. But when I started doing the sweet spot training, my threshold went up my ability to just ride hard for a long period of time uh, went went up a much and, you know, climbing, time trialing, everything. So I tell people that story. And then honestly, though, the thing that kind of cracks me on the polarized camp, it's you got to do both. And if you, you know, we recorded a podcast on it about, it's actually the sweet spot falls into this uh, model of training called pyramidal training. And uh, it's not sweet spot versus zone two, it's pyramidal versus polarized. And there's been some researchers out there and they've done studies with elite level athletes and regular Joes. And they compare, there's one particular study by the Spanish group. We did a podcast on it a couple of years ago. Um, It was kind of like, all right, let's do this podcast to answer all the polarized people. But the results of the study were this. So one group did pyramidal training, which is sweet spot. One group did the polarized training, which is, you know, zone two, 80, 20. And then one group did pyramidal first, then polarized. And guess which group got the fastest? I want to guess, but when you said that your uh, zone two training led to less power toward the end of a race, it just scrambled my entire brain. So (laughs) I I have no idea. (laughs) So the group that did pyramidal for a period of time and then did polarized training got the fastest. And so the conclusion is, you know, you hear about periodization and annual training. The conclusion is you really want to do both. So do pyramidal training with sweet spot, then do what we call switch from base to race, then do the polarized method. You know, a lot of zone two, a lot of rest, a lot of high intensity intervals, 
And that's how you reach your best performance. And it turns out that's really how most cyclists have been doing it for years and years. Uh, you don't want to do polarized training year round. You don't want to do sweet spot training year round. You want to periodize it and do pyramidal and polarized. That's, that's the fastest version of yourself. Oh, that's rad. So first off, base to race is another incredible term that I'm definitely going to be using at some point. And that's so right. in the off season, are you saying that you would do zone two rides and sweet spot focus there, and then you come mm-hmm. toward your race season and then you would switch to zone two threshold and above essentially. That's right. Yeah. Okay. So yeah, you want, let's you just want, sit. Go, go ahead. Yeah. You want to, once you get, once you build up your base sufficiently, stop doing sweet spot, chill out, ride easy, then do your, your zone four, five, and six intervals. And that's when, that's when your power goes up. You got a big base that you built and then you put that high powered, uh, work on top of it. That's the, that's how you get the fastest. So then what is the split in the off season for sweet spot versus zone two? Is it essentially, or I guess, you know what I'm asking is like, how much zone two would you need to do, uh, during the off season? And then mm-hmm. how much zone two do you need to do mid season to maintain that base? Yeah. Um, sorry if that's two, yeah. two crazy questions trying to answer at once, but, uh, Mm-hmm. What do you say to that? Like, let's just say that I ride, I pedal five days a week. Maybe uh-huh. I ride a couple different disciplines, but I pedal a bike five days a week. What, how would you split the sweet spot and the zone two in the off season? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you're like a lot of our, our athletes and we have, we have these sweet spot training plans that we developed about five years ago and we've made improvements to them every single year based on like feedback. And the way I would structure your training is so we have this what I call working working man and woman's training plan design. So Monday and Friday off, and then we do short structured interval training Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, because most people have, you know, we're working and they have a limited time to train. So that's when you do your structured interval work. And then on the weekend, Saturday and Sundays, you're going to do a big sweet spot day on Saturday and then maybe uh, a moderately long zone two day on Sunday. But going back to Tuesday, that's when you're going to do your sweet spot work, three by 10, three by 12, four by eight, four by nine. Maybe, you know, once you work your way up, you may get up to be able to do three by 15, three by 20, four by 15, that sort of thing. And so you're doing a lot of sweet spot structured and we actually quantify that. So if you do four by 15, that's 60 minutes. You might only have time to do, I don't know, five, 10 minutes, warm up, cool down. And, you know, in that, that's your ride, to be honest. So heavy on the sweet spot, short on the zone two. But then by the time you get to Thursday, your legs are kind of whacked. You're tired. And we have you ride zone two on Thursdays. We we call it a fatigue dependent training plan design. So you do your harder stuff on Tuesday, less hard on Wednesday, easiest on Thursday, go with the grain of fatigue, rest on Friday. And then you do your big honking sweet spot ride on Saturday. We actually... We're big fans of group rides. We're big fans of unstructured training. Yeah. A lot of athletes love it. They're we they're like, you mean I can just go out and ride hard? We're like, yeah. Yeah. You know, don't ride too that's hard. That's me. Yeah. Well, yeah, that's why you're so fast, you know? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, but yeah, you do it in an unstructured way that's super fun. It's flexible to maybe what you have. Some people like to go join a club ride. Some people like to do a big giant loop. You know, some people are training for these gravel events, which are hella long. And it's super good training when you pair it with structured sweet spot and tempo and zone two work during the week. Dude, that is such great uh, information. Thank you for that. And so it's good to see that you could put in essentially two, let's say you ride five days a week. You put in two zone two rides split in the whole week. You have two days off. The other days are sweet spot training. This would be the off season. Now let's say, mm-hmm. oh, by the way, one thing to add to that, the way that you stack the zone two after the intensity, it, it just seems really smart to me. And I, I definitely do that almost. Sub, maybe it's because I've just learned through ex- getting more consistent with riding, but that is a strategy I'll take on where if I go blow myself out on a ride, 
but I want to ride the following day, I just commit to a lower intensity because you still get that burn a little bit and you're stacking on that volume, but it's something manageable and it almost helps you go into your rest day feeling a little bit better opposed to doing like a crazy hard session. And then the next day you feel a little extra stiff because you didn't have that, uh, like that dimmer switch, you know what I mean? And so I, I love the way that you space that out. And so if you did that through the off season or a version of it, let's say that you're at this point now in March, you have a race at the end of April. Maybe it's your a race. Maybe it's your first, uh, Fondo or just major event that you want to go and perform at. What would you recommend this athlete doing in the next month? Because they want to go from base to race. Yeah. 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 So the, so when you go to base to race, what we like to, so you're going to go from doing sub threshold work to interval work. And so you're going from not as hard as you can to as hard as you can. So we have athletes do zone four or five and six workouts as hard as they can. You know, you use your training zones, but you're also trying to make the most power and, you know, highest speed during the interval. So the question I would have for you or for the athlete, I would want to know what type of event they're training for. Is it a time trial? Is it uh, a, a flat road race with a sprint at the end? Is it a gravel event with a ton of climbing? And that's going to help me help the athlete determine what type of intervals to do. So say, say or maybe you're doing, or is it like, I, is I it say gravel? Water? Yeah. <clears throat> yeah. I was just thinking maybe a climbing gravel race. Um, sure. Because in my head, that would be similar to a rolling road race, but you should tell me. Yeah. So let's just say it's a, it's a climbing gravel race. It's mm-hmm. going to be. 70 miles with about 6,000 feet of climbing mm-hmm. or maybe, maybe a hundred miles with like 8,000 feet, like at BWR, uh, yeah. maybe that ballpark. Yeah. So what we're going to work on when you switch from base to race, when you begin your interval phase is what we call supra threshold. That's your zone four plus that's doing intervals at like a hundred, 104%. And the time range of those intervals is specific to the course. So like we just designed um, our BWR Asheville plan, very similar to the San Diego plan. A lot of climbs between eight and 12 minutes. So you do no shocker three by eight, four by 12, three by 10, a lot of you're working on the power output specific to the course from bottom to top. And so that's what we mean by super threshold. You don't want to be doing like threshold Watts that's going too easy. So you go like 102, 103% for, 30, 40 minutes when you add up the length of the intervals. We would do that. Um, you're going to do zone two the day after because that's really hard work, requires a lot of uh, recovery. And then uh, we're going to have you do like, uh, so what we, we have this thing we call a simulation ride. It's the Saturday mm. ride. Um, and we say, okay, you know, so say you're doing that rolly uh, gravel race, 70 miles, 6,000 feet of climbing. We say, if you can uh, go out and do that in training, go ride 70 miles, 6,000 feet of climbing, try to sweet spot up that climb, or even maybe do the first couple of climbs at threshold, kind of like race pace intensity, and then hang on for dear life in hours three, four, and five, because that's how a gravel race is. You know, you rip the first couple hours, you start to get tired, and you got to go into like diesel mode and just chug home. And we have mm-hmm. athletes practice their hydration. We have them practice their nutrition. And we also have them put their equipment through the paces. So like testing out tires, you know, uh, whatever bike setup they want to try. Maybe they're using a hydration pack for the first time. And that's how it, I'm kind of getting away from switching from base to race. But that's how we approach intervals for a gravel racer. If that, if that rings a bell. Yeah. Well, the info that you went toward, it was like, you're getting more specific toward these gravel events, which as I'm experiencing more and more of, I love the race simulation idea because I noticed for gravel, even though I had done rides that were much bigger than the course length, the thing about a race, even if you're not really trying to race it, you your stop time and your time off the bike is so much more minimal than it would be if you were just going out for a big ride on the weekend, uh, even a big ride with some friends. 
And that was something that really threw me for a loop was how minimal stop time was, if any. And now that I've started to get the hang of it a little bit more, I want to push myself and see how well I can do. And like BWR in Scottsdale, I got off and stopped on the, I stopped at one aid station about mile 80 and Mm -hmm. I was off the bike for three to four minutes is what it felt like. Maybe even, maybe even less. And, Mm -hmm. you know, took a leak took a handful of gummy bears, got a refill on water and I got a couple gels from somebody and then just jumped right back on. And that race was 122 miles. It was for me, it was seven hours of moving time. And so you think about it, it's like, when do you go and ride seven hours and you get off the bike for three minutes? Like that never happens except in a race. (laughs) So if you went and did a race simulation, is that something that you'd encourage for people is have a very timely rest stop, minimal uh, keep the pressure on like the clock's ticking. Is that something that you encourage? Yeah. I mean, you want to practice how you want to play and, you know, ain't no stopping at a coffee shop for 20 minutes in a gravel race, unless like that's your jam and you're cool with it. But we encourage most athletes to treat those aid stations like a formula one pit stop, put one foot down, fill it up, get going eight seconds, that sort of thing. And so, oh yeah, you, I mean, yeah. When you do your gravel simulation rides, you know, a lot of times they're best done solo because you can control that. If you might like find one or two training partners that have the same goal. And generally, once you get in a group, everyone's like, "Yeah, let's stop." And you know, I mean, but you got to balance it. You want to do a little bit of both. But generally, when you get when it comes down to to business to get ready, you might want to do that simulation ride on your own so you can practice like going into that the quickie mart filling up super quick and getting going i mean yeah it it really helps there's a big difference between riding for five hours straight and then riding for five hours but it's like what you're telling the wife like i stopped here and i stopped here and you you come home after six and a half hours big difference because you just don't you don't take breaks like that in a race yeah. Unless yeah, it's time segments. Yeah. Then it's a little bit different race format, but generally gravel, man. Like at, at BWR Scottsdale, I stopped once. That that aid yeah. station at McDowell Mountain Park, down to Coke, got a bottle fill up, gone. I, be, I didn't even speak to anybody. It was just like, let's do this. Get it, get off, get on, go. Yeah. Yeah. It was funny. The aid station I stopped at wasn't planned. But it, it, and it wasn't even an official aid station. These ladies said that we're unofficial. We're not with the race. We just wanted to help out. And they just, uh, yeah, gave me the water I needed. It happened, just happened to be in the perfect place. And, uh, I even talked about on my own podcast that doing some course recon is something that I found more and more beneficial. It's like the faster you start going, the more important it becomes. And so what would you say before we take off here? about someone who is on the road bike doing some rolling road races Mm -hmm. Uh, because you gave us some good clarity on the base to race for, for gravel. But if someone's going to go out and start doing some rolling road races, uh, what would you have them do Uh, anything different? Yeah, uh, definitely different. Um, actually concentrate on VO two max intervals because you know, three, four or five minute intervals, because if you look at what happens in a road race, And think about making the break. There's generally a period of time before the break is formed where we look at power files from riders and the pace is, it's been hard, it's been hard, it's been hard. And then there's like this five minutes of make or break where the athlete either makes it into the breakaway or they Mm -hmm. don't, they can't make it. And then, then they go back to the Peloton, the breakaway goes up the road, but it's that five minute power that enables someone to make that breakaway and then they roll that breakaway and then they got to like whatever sprint it out or win it at the end. But that it's, it's all about the VO two max power. So for roadies, when you switch from base to race, heavy, heavy on the VO two max intervals. And then we don't skip the uh, anaerobic work. So 30 second intervals, one minute intervals, you know, you, you probably heard it called anaerobic capacity you know, can you go, is your anaerobic capacity for five minutes or 10 minutes, or can you do like 20 minutes worth of anaerobic work as you're making the break? So we'll pair VO2 max intervals with anaerobic work, like zone five, one day, zone six, 
the next day. Pretty difficult. But when they give them rest days and, and you know, a lot of zone two riding. But yeah, that's definitely the way you'd have a roadie train. It, you know, if your gravel race is like that from the terrain perspective, you know, like Mid-South just happened, predominantly flat. You know, the basically the race goes into uh, like groups. There's a front group and a second group. But generally, who made, whoever made that front group, it was VO, came down to their VO2 max power. So we would have them train that. So you're saying that if you are a gravel racer and you're primarily riding flatter courses that do rely on group dynamics even more so than a climbing course with a lot of single track or whatever it may be, uh, mm-hmm. you're saying that training like a rolling road racer for that event could almost be more beneficial. Yeah. I mean, yeah. physiologically, road and gravel races are very similar. You're just on different terrain. Now, of course, like if you do a crusher and the tusher, which is long sustained climbing, BWR is like a road race. I mean, we podcasted with Alexi Vermillion last year after he won the BWR. And, you know, yeah. he's raced in the world tour. And, you know, it, he'll, he'll tell you that's like a Belgian classic or an Ardennes classic with climbing, like a mm. Liège, you know, or an Amstel Gold. And, you know, so yeah, you, you train VO2 and super, super threshold power. You got to train anaerobic, be able to, you know, make the break and be in, you know, be able to respond to accelerations and stuff. And so gravel, I love gravel training because we know so much about it from, or how to get faster from road, road cycling. That's so cool. You know, I did a ride with Nielsen palace. It was just over a year ago now. It's crazy to think, um, he moved over to, uh, to Nice, but mm-hmm. he was talking about how surprisingly surgy the Peloton can be, uh, when he, when, when you're racing it. And that was something that stuck with me. I just remember thinking, gosh, you know, you think you almost need the sustained power like you would with a lot of gravel stuff. But he said, he's like, no, it's, it's just, a, I mean, of course that you do at their level, you need to be good at everything. But yeah, but he said, yeah, it's just surprisingly surgy. Like the on off power is, is more than you would expect. Um, mm-hmm. even, even like in the tour de France. And so yeah. it, it, it's insane, dude. I'm, I'm actually like holding myself back from diving into more questions, uh, because <laughs> there's just so much to talk about. So, uh, before we kind of wrap things up, is there anything that you want to add to what we just mentioned? Uh, well, I do think Nielsen palace is the most underrated North American cyclist that we got. I mean, he got fourth in the world's total bad. Can we curse on this show? Yeah, total, total bad, <laughs> badass. I mean, in Sergius, this guy's got to be able to do 700 watts for 10 seconds, 15 seconds, 20 seconds, over and over and over. And it's, it's they just go into full beast mode when they're riding super fast. So yeah, a lot of props to, to those guys. I, w- I guess I would say, I mean, I really enjoyed being here. You asked some really great questions. Um, yeah, you know, I'd, yeah, keep it coming. Um, yeah, yeah. I don't really have anything else to add. We do have a new app. Oh. I'll, say, I'll say that if you don't mind me promoting that. We, oh, um, please do. Yeah. So we have um, a new app in the app store. If you search FastCat, it's optimized. You can go in it. You can subscribe. You can get uh, all, any sweet spot plan that we just talked about. You can get interval plans that we just talked about for road and gravel. We have four different sweet spot plans that you can – it's a progression from the one, one through four. We have mm. BWR plans. And uh, we are big into wearable technology, uh, your, your recovery. There's three, three fundamentals of training. There's the actual training you do. There's a recovery you get and then eating, nutrition. And we p- kind of put all those into the app. You can sync your, your wearable devices, your Whoop, your Aura, your Apple Watch, your Garmin. And then you can measure your recovery, balance that with your training. We have meal plans and, and recipes and we're just getting started, so I'm pretty stoked on that. That's what I've been working on a lot lately. Yeah, I've been diving into it as well. I just downloaded the app. I've been getting your newsletter every Tuesday, which people can yeah. get excellent training tips from. And mm-hmm. so I couldn't recommend your platform enough. Uh, everyone go and check out FastCat. Is it just FastCatTraining.com? FastCatCoaching.com, and it's spelled mm-hmm. F-A-S-C-A-T Coaching.com. 
Yeah. And go, I, I actually just subscribed to your podcast and <laughs> it's cool to hear you mention a few things because in partnered content uh, that you've done with Ben Delaney, who has a great YouTube channel, it sounds like he's a co-host on your podcast. I've heard him yeah. talk about the uh, race simulation rides. And mm-hmm. so it's just a really cool uh, network that um, I, I don't know. I feel like I'm starting to get a part of it. I'm just super grateful to have the opportunity to talk to you um, with all your experience and everything like that. So hopefully we, you can come back and we can discuss it a little bit to. more. Cause like I said, I was just biting my tongue so much uh, <laughs> to not make this thing go too long. So uh, thanks again, yeah. Frank. Hopefully we can talk again soon. Yeah. Thanks for having me, Derek. Really enjoyed it. All right, Dialed fam, it's time to buckle up, strap yourselves in because we have weekly thoughts and I'm going to be bouncing all around this place like a friggin' ping pong ball because there's like five different topics that almost have nothing to do with each other that I want to talk about. And the first thing that I'm adding on last minute is about the protein shake that I just had because you'll have to forgive me. I am burping up a storm between the time I recorded that interview with Frank and now I went and had a huge protein shake with my cereal topper. And this is something I plugged on my story on Instagram recently, but I haven't dove into this very much. Almost every single day for lunch, usually post-workout, I've been having a protein shake with a cereal topper, as mentioned. And it's been pretty much just my midday meal. And I want to tell you how I'm doing that and what I'm doing. So there's like two different types of shakes I've been making. Right now, I have a chocolate protein powder and a vanilla protein powder. And so let me give you the quick recipes for what I do with the vanilla one because it's currently my favorite. Today, I had chocolate. I'll tell you what that is as well. So BPN, my supplement sponsor, this is a plug, of course. Uh, They're the best. I, I love their protein powder. And for whatever reason, their vegan vanilla is so freaking good. I've told the podcast listeners in the past and on other platforms that I choose vegan protein because whey upsets my stomach. I'm not vegan, but this goes through my system way better. And unfortunately, over the years, my ability to process uh, certain dairy, certain lactose has just diminished. So it's sad. It's a bummer. But thankfully, there's great vegan protein powders. And what I found with vegan protein powders is that some of them are extremely clean Like the ingredients are impeccable. You look at it and you're like, this is as healthy as it gets, but they taste like fish food. I kid you not. Fish food is my example because I had fish at one point growing up and the way that some of these proteins taste is the way that food used to smell. It's disgusting. And I've also tried some vegan proteins that are kind of on the other end where there's more artificial ingredients and colors uh, and flavors in general. So It tastes really good, but you also are kind of thinking like, okay, like this could be a little bit higher quality. And you guys know I'm not afraid of food, okay? Like I got Coke Zero in my fridge right now. (laughs) You know, I had a Red Bull earlier after my ride. I'm not going to sit here and say I don't take in artificial ingredients. Um, And and just in general, don't don't be afraid of food. Uh, But it is good to make these improvements over time. And that's what's so cool about the vegan protein from BPN is that it is – extremely clean, as clean as any protein I've had, but it also tastes so freaking good. So anyways, the vanilla is the one I'd recommend. I get peanut butter and chocolate. The oatmeal cookie is a little weird to me. Um, Some people really like it, but that's my recommendation there. I add it with frozen mixed berries. I do two scoops of the protein, sometimes a scoop and a half if I'm really watching calories. And that way I get between 30 and 40 grams of protein. I add five grams of creatine monohydrate. I add a little bit of cinnamon and some sea salt, and then I fill that sucker up with some almond milk. And sometimes I'll add honey, like 20 grams of honey or so, so like a tablespoon into the actual shake itself. Uh, But it depends on what the topper is going to be. So if I'm going to do my OG topper, which prepare yourselves for this one, this is a freaking move right here. Uh, Sorry, I'm so passionate about this right now. I just I just had a cup of coffee. I don't know what's going on. So I <laughs> I get the Kashi original Go Lean cereal, not the Crunch. If you get the Crunch, it's like a granola. 
and it's just way higher calorie. It's great, but get the original Kashi Goline cereal. It's a red and white box. And it's also vegan, I believe, uh, but it's a protein packed cereal and the macros on it are, they're the best cereal macros you'll get, uh, without having whey protein in it. Like cereals like magic spoon that have come out that are super high protein are amazing, but they're also full of whey and, uh, different things that upset my stomach. So you can get this Kashi cereal. It's crunchy. It's got different textures. It's very filling. You put a serving on top, you get an extra 12 grams of protein. Uh, there's a good amount of carbohydrate in it. And then you put some honey on top of that. Oh my gosh. Maybe you got some extra calories to work with. And now you're scooping a little peanut butter in there as well. That is my recipe for the vanilla shake. Now we go to the chocolate. It's very similar, but I will do uh, a banana and then ice instead of the frozen berries. My you know, scoop and a half to two scoops of chocolate. I don't do cinnamon, but I do sea salt, do my almond milk. Sometimes I'll throw peanut butter in it and then I'll do my protein topper. Now, if I have a granola I'm going to use, I won't add honey because granolas are usually a lot sweeter to begin with. And if you look at the macros on granola, you guys are going to be so depressed. If you've never looked at the nutrition label, and I guess looked at it with an understanding of what good and bad macros are. Like you will look at granola and not even think it's possible. You're like, you're telling me, like you, you're telling me two thirds of a cup of this granola is 250 calories. <laughs> Get out of here. You guys, I promise you the only time you're doing a serving that small is maybe if you're putting it on top of an individual yogurt pack, maybe then. You know, this is like the the almonds scenario. Like you you weigh out what 28 grams of almonds or one serving of almonds is, and you're just like, uh, <laughs> that's like the amount that I eat while I'm serving up my almonds into my to-go pack. You know what I mean? <laughs> like it's just it's bonkers. So, anyways, try a protein topper. It's a really good way to turn just a shake into a little bit more of a meal because I mean, I'm not going to sit here and pretend that a shake is going to fill me up like a normal meal will. I need a little bit more sustenance in my belly. And that's why I started doing that cereal to begin with. So try that out. A couple recipes for you guys. And uh, now let's talk about what I actually planned on. Number one, I've been doing an overhead kettlebell, kettlebell carry at the end of all my strength training sessions in like the last month. And it feels incredible. So I really want you guys to try this because... It's a very low intensity way to get extra shoulder volume and to work on your shoulder stability and potentially increase your mobility it just because of the extra time overhead, especially if you have full extension in your elbow and also your shoulder. So at the end of your session, grab a kettlebell. You can also do it with a dumbbell. A dumbbell is just going to be a slightly more stable version of this, and it's still super beneficial. Actually, I have a dumbbell variation programmed in one of the programs on the website. And so you're going to put it overhead, one arm. I want perfect posture, and I want your shoulder packed. So that means when this thing is overhead and it's starting to wobble, I don't want you to try and grip harder and try and force the stability through your forearm and hand like a lot of people tend to do. I want you to focus on your shoulder blade. I want you to focus on your lats, everything around your scapula and your back to stabilize the kettlebell or the dumbbell overhead. If you do that, most likely your shoulder is going to be in a better pack position. And then you're also, you're going to feel more stable and it's going to work the muscles that we really want. So walk for, it could be maybe as little as 30 feet. Ideally, it'd be more around 50 feet. And you're going to want to have a legitimate weight so that it's somewhat challenging. But again, you're not pressing it. You're not, you know, doing any type of concentric or eccentric. You're just holding it overhead statically and walking. So it's not super taxing, but you will feel a real burn in your shoulder. And you should go to the point where you actually want to put it down. So do that two to three times at the on each arm at the end of your strength training session. And I think you're really going to like the way that it feels. And I think for cyclists in particular, sprinkling a little bit of extra upper body volume like this is a great way for you to just feel stronger without, uh, you know, destroying your ride the following day. So that is my tip for you guys. Overhead, single arm carry. Now, next thing I want to talk about atomic habits. While I take a sip of coffee, one second, I just made this beautiful pour over. I didn't have nearly enough coffee, so my wife and I had to share 
a smaller cup for an afternoon cup, but I'm going to take a sip real quick. One moment. Oh, it's beautiful. Okay, so next thing I'm going to talk about, Atomic Habits. I just started this book, and honestly, I can see why so many people are talking about this book. It is so well written. I'm like 40 pages into it, but I'm getting sucked in. From the introduction to just the first two chapters, it's incredible. It almost I feel like Atomic Habits is going to be this like new age um, and this is a huge statement. I'm only 40 pages in, but it's like going to be a new age think and grow rich. I almost feel like, you know, Napoleon Hill's think and grow rich. It's like stood the test of time. It was written in the early 1900s or mid 1900s. I can't remember when, but it's like, it just is this book that every entrepreneur needs to read every, uh, I, I mean, really everybody, you can apply these principles to running your household and your family. So it's, it's really, really cool to see someone take all these ideas of like past people and almost like put it together because in the first two chapters, I'm reminded of books I've read in the past, like The Compound Effect and also The Dip. And I kind of wanted to go over just some of these uh, points from these two books really quickly and just encourage you to go check out the book Atomic Habits. I have a feeling this is going to be something I try and get my members to read moving forward because starting new habits, breaking old habits, it's incredibly difficult. And I could never go into this type of detail. And I feel like what I've learned already in the last, you know, 40 pages or just a couple of days of reading this uh, is something that I would not be able to really like translate to people. I guess I could break down little points and maybe I should make more of an attempt to do that in the future. But Atomic Habits by James Clear, it's incredible. The first part kind of talks about compounding small wins. And it's the whole point of the book is that you have these atomic or like micro sized changes that you make. And over time, they have this huge profound effect uh, on your life. And the basic idea that there's not going to be one huge changing moment that really drills in a new habit or lifestyle for anybody. It's just this compounding slow change. And that's the book Compounding Habits. It's like amazing the examples they have about saving money or trying to get a promotion or you're working on your fitness and like these little tweaks you can make and ultimately become the person that gets the results that you want. And that's what the beginning of this book talks about. It's like don't focus on the outcome of that thing that you want to do. Focus on becoming the person that does those types of things. For instance, if you want to write a book and you want the outcome of having a published book, what do you need to do? You need to become a writer. What do writers do? Writers write every single day. <laughs> and so this could apply to cooking. This could apply to your fitness. You know, instead of saying, oh, I just, I have to like lose 10 pounds. I have to lose 10 pounds. You have to ask yourself, what would someone who is 10 pounds lighter do? Or just what is someone that is healthier do? What is someone who has a higher FTP? What, what do they do? And I need to be that person and take action and focus there opposed to just focusing on the end result. And it, it sounds almost too basic when I say it. This is why you really have to go read it. Uh, but the next point he talks about is the dip. There's a book by Seth Godin, Seth Godin, I think it's Seth Godin, uh, called The Dip. And this is a book I think almost anyone needs to read if they're starting something new, especially if they want to monetize that thing and they want that thing to become their job, this could be uh, social media, this could be any type of business that you have. But the dip talks about the initial start that you get that's pure excitement from doing any type of new task and, and starting this thing. So, you know, you put it out there and then all of a sudden, what, what does everybody say? They're like, oh, good for you. That sounds awesome. Like, this is cool. This is new. You get a lot of initial praise and you get a lot of initial engagement because people are excited for you. They're rooting for you. Maybe it is a good idea or a good thing that you're doing. They're just happy for you. And in that way, they're supporting you. So initially you have a, and also you're so early in the process that almost anything you do for, let's just say that business or that activity, almost anything that you do is going to lead to improvement because you don't have any foundation late. It's like you can go do anything. So the problem is people start there, they get excited, and then all of a sudden they get to a point 
where that excitement of everyone else that was initially cheering for you wears off. And I'm going to tell you guys, the dip doesn't just come and go. The dip comes back around. I have experienced this multiple times where people are very stoked for you. And then after a few months, they're kind of just, it's, it's, it's again, they don't, it's nothing vindictive. They just lose a little bit of interest. No one's going to be as passionate about your thing as you are. And so if you aren't basically continuing to reinvent yourself and your product or whatever it may be, it's very easy for that excitement to wear off. And also like people just, when they learn about you or what you're doing initially, they can get really stoked. And then maybe they think it's going to solve all their problems. And then maybe they realize it comes back to their own energy level and effort or whatever it may be. Maybe I'm speaking too personally here and they lose excitement for that reason. But the dip is all about, per, it's about being persistent and continuing to persevere when that excitement wears off and the sales drop and the engagement drops and the attention drops. It's like, can you keep going and keep pushing through that dip until you reach a bigger audience? And for a lot of people, the answer is no. <laughs> and I think that's a huge separating moment. So initially uh, in Atomic Havocs, James Clear talks about just becoming the person focusing on your own uh, strategy. And I think strategy is not the word he used. It's your, uh, oh my gosh, I'm, I'm, I'm messing it up, but it's your... It's it's a word for your habits. It's your. I'm blowing you right now. You'll you'll read the book and you'll know uh, what it is. But basically, it's your it's your framework. It's how you live, focusing on that and who you're becoming, opposed to focusing on just the outcome and then surviving the dip. Essentially, so go and read Atomic Habits. Very very stoked on that book, and uh, it just keeps coming with the quotes. I've been saving them left and right. Now I want to talk about YouTube. This has been the biggest struggle for me, you guys, is finding a consistent way to do it. I've tried a lot of new stuff, and I feel like it almost always misses the mark for one or two things. And we, I recently started working with a new videographer, Gaston, who is also a – he's racing Oceanside Triathlon uh, 70.3. Uh, he just won a Cat 4 rolling road race locally, like in the rain. <laughs> he's a gnarly rider, a really cool dude, and we just have started cranking out some YouTube videos. So we posted one. It did pretty well. Uh, but the, the goal for me with YouTube is to really be able to – give people not only information, but show them like who I am as a person and what I'm going through so that I can build and create dialed health. And like the person really behind the product, because you can only see so much with short form content like Instagram, which has gone really well for me. But again, it has its own limitations. And they're also changing so much on the back end right now. It's been kind of hard to keep up with from a business standpoint. And so I've wanted to have a longer form content that is visual because a lot of the stuff I do is visual, uh, just besides this podcast. And so I thought, okay, I'll just do a visual podcast. But even with that format, it becomes so much about the information and not as much all the other cool stuff that I, that I do, to be honest. So I am trying to find that balance of information and great visuals for people. And so hopefully you guys will see that on YouTube. The goal is to put out one video per week. Uh, so far, so good. Uh, we're going to be on track for that, I think, at least for the next week. <laughs> and we'll see after that. But I'll tell you, being able to uh, show a combination of strength work and writing and you know a little bit of random stuff here and there, like there's always going to have to be a point to the videos like, this is a strength workout. This is a bike fit. The one we filmed for next week is a tour of my pain cave, my newly built out garage, which has been requested a ton. So there's going to be, have to be like a solid point of information and that's going to be the focus of the video, but I want to include other things and to, to really get people involved. And, and to be honest, I want them to get invested with me the way that I'm invested with Nick bear behind uh, bear performance nutrition or Lionel Sanders, for example, who is a triathlete that has totally sucked me into learning more about all that world because it's just like you you can't watch this dude and not root for him you know what i mean it's like you watch this dude and you want to know how things are going so that's really what i want to create with youtube and and also the ability to comment on each video really opens the door to build up the community uh which we tried to do in in, in other ways as well 
Um, and it's ultimately like the, I don't want to say it's the downfall of the podcast because there's almost ways around it. I noticed uh, Payson McKelvin is taking audio submissions from people who listen to the podcast about like race recaps and including them. I mean, there's there are some cool things you can do, but you know, it's like I get how it is. Like right now, you're listening on a ride, you're listening in the car, you're listening while you're doing dishes. You know, it's hard enough to get someone to just review your podcast, let alone dive into like a forum thread about it or something. So anyways, I'm excited about YouTube. Please go and check it out if you guys have not yet done so. And hopefully you're just going to be stoked on the uh, wider variety of content that's more regular. And uh, that's kind of just what I'm focusing on. So I was telling my wife this morning, you know, I really want to nail weeks where there's an, you know, I post my story, I'd say like five days a week on Instagram but I want to at least have one fresh feed post for everyone once a week. I want to have a YouTube video a week, a podcast per week, also a newsletter. And then the big one, uh, which I haven't even talked about yet, which is the daily dialed for the app, uh, which is going to be our members only content there. So there's just, it's a lot to take on and do consistently long-term, but I will say, I feel like I'm getting into a better groove now than I have in the last year at least. Uh, so hopefully we can keep it up. <laughs> um, and that's probably it. I think that's about everything I wanted to bring up. Oh, wait, last thing you guys, one more time, uh, or not one more time, but one more thing. Hold on. I need to calm down. Let me, let me calm down by drinking some more of this caffeinated beverage. One second. Okay. I got a new tarmac. You know, I was going to do a lot deeper dive on this, you guys can let me know if you want me to, but I'll say I got a brand new tarmac for the first time in two years. I've been on my previous tarmac. They're both SL7s, but this new one is a pro build. My previous was an expert build that had an upgraded wheel set on it. Now, when I bought that wheel set, I was under the assumption that it could go tubeless, but it cannot. It's a pair of Zip 302s. And to, like, honestly, at the time I wasn't running tubeless. I wasn't sure if I wanted to try it, but I just figured, oh, I'll buy this wheel set and I'll have the option, but I didn't. <laughs> and who knew you could spend $1,100 on a wheel set and it doesn't even go tubeless. So anyways, that was a lesson learned, but, uh, you know, I was running that bike. It had DI2 uh, Shimano on it, ended up running some specialized turbo cotton 28 tires, uh, with the latex tubes that are ultra light. And for the most part, I had really good luck, uh, you know, I love my DI2. The only problem was all my other bikes right now are SRAM. And I'm sure you guys could imagine going back and forth with completely different shifting systems is it, it can be difficult at times. You know, my crux has been SRAM. So when I'm riding a bunch of road and then I hop on the crux for a gravel race, I'll be mid race and I almost shift wrong, which that kind of thing shouldn't be happening. So <laughs> I am excited on this new tarmac to have SRAM mostly because it's just, uh, you know, the same that I'm running on all of my bikes. And I also have the dopest wheel set that allows me to run tubeless. And I currently put some 30 tubeless Pirelli. I'm looking over at the name of the tire. I forget the exact name, but I have some 30 uh, tubeless Pirellis on it. And they feel so freaking good. You know what's wild? The front rim on this bike is so wide that it actually sticks out like half a centimeter on each side with the 30s on it. <laughs> I mean, it is absolutely wild looking. It's so supple. Uh, for the nerds out there, I'm running my tire pressure, so I'm 155 pounds. Uh, maybe, actually, I was 157 this morning. Uh, that was some late night oatmeal for you with a lot of brown sugar. But <laughs> I am 155, 157, and I, I'm running my front at uh, 70 and my rear at 72. I also did a ride at 68 and 70, which I liked. I'm trying to figure out that air pressure, but I'll just tell you guys, this bike is so smooth. And one thing I have on it now are some aero carbon bars. And previously I didn't have that. I had some aluminum bars. And for one, the aero bars look great. The the like the top's position when you're climbing with the flat bar and it's got a little bit of like a like a grip texture on it. It feels incredible, but the bars are definitely more supple. And I feel like they really kill some of that road vibration and just the having the bigger wheels, the tubeless. I mean, right now I'm, I'm so sold on it. It's freaking awesome. So we'll see what happens when I start getting sprayed in the face, uh, at some point with some tire sealant, 
you know, I run tubeless on all my other bikes, so I'm somewhat used to it, but I guess the higher pressures is a little bit of a, you know, different deal. So we'll find out about it, but all in all, absolutely stoked to be on some fresh bikes. I also got a brand new stump jumper Evo and this should almost be like its own weekly thoughts segment because like, I'm so excited about riding trail, but I did this poll on my Instagram when I got this bike or both of these bikes, cause they, uh, they were actually delivered to me by specialized to my house, which is probably one of the coolest experiences ever. And I did a poll. I was like, would you want the stump jumper, the tarmac or both? And I could not believe the answers on this because you guys know my entire history is from gravity mountain biking. And it just really shows how much my audience has changed. But the, the primary vote was just the tarmac, not even both, which blows my mind. It's like, someone's like, no, nah, I just want the tarmac. I'm like, whoa, you know, we really have built a community that has so many more gravel and road and, and ultimately drop our riders. And I really think there's a lot of reason for that. It's just an interesting thing to think about because, you know, it is my roots and it's something I still absolutely love. Like I can't wait to get on this bike and just ride, <laughs> but it's crazy to see the direction of the business go this way, but it makes a lot of sense. Uh, when you look at my content, my own personal interest, and ultimately the, the people behind the sport, um, I, I should almost do a conversation talking about, I think maybe the benefits of being in gravity as a a trainer essentially versus being an endurance and like vice versa, because I've really learned a lot through this whole transition. Uh, and it's been interesting. So I guess I'll just leave it at that for now. All in all, I'm just so grateful for everybody who is really a part of dialed health. I mean, you listening to this podcast now, anyone who's active on any of the social media and, and most importantly, the dialed fan members, you know, if they weren't paying for a mem membership and using the programs, like I wouldn't, be able to do this. So I'm so grateful for you guys. And I'm, I'm really excited about the next programs too. I want to, I kind of want to drop two at a time. I think we'll drop at least one uh, within the next month. So it's coming soon. And it's something that you're going to be able to use throughout your race season. So stay tuned to that, everybody. Um, and, and again, just thanks for the support. Um, it, it's so exciting to see kind of the next steps. And I feel like the future vision is getting a little bit more clear. And Hopefully all this steady content just really comes back to benefit everything. Um, and, and, oh man, there's just so much, you guys. Like even my email flow this week has been impeccable because uh, that can be obviously hit and miss at times. It's like I even, I said it on the most recent YouTube video. I feel like I'm at this point where I push really hard in one area and then another area falls off majorly. So through this week, finding the balance of uh, a lot of these back-end operations, front-end operations, all the operations uh, man, it feels like it's getting better. So anyways, um, have an amazing week. I got to wrap it up here. I'm actually taking my grandma to sushi. Uh, my wife and I are because she gave me a ride to the airport for when I went to BWR in Arizona and now I owe her some sushi. So we're going to go do that. <laughs> anyways, I got to go. I hope you guys enjoyed this episode and took some, uh, stuff away from that conversation with Frank that you can implement and, uh, please be sure to leave a five-star Apple review, that would be huge. Screenshot that you're listening to this, post it to your social media. Make sure you tag me on Instagram so that I have the opportunity to repost it. You can also tag uh, Fast Cat Coaching, I believe. I'll leave the link down in the description. Um, but F-A-S-C-A-T, that is Frank's business, and uh, show them some love as well. So thank you guys. Have an incredible week, and we'll see you next time. Until then, start moving forward.